Tony Dorsett was kind of reaching the peak in his career, and I guess the mindset was, you know, USFL is not going to be around, and let's take a shot at Herschel. Do you remember that, those years? Well, yeah, I do. Uh, and, and I don't know if the mindset was so much that, although that may have entered into it, uh, but really it was more about the kind of thing that had brought them Roger Staubach. Remember, Tech Schramm was the guy who did that, and a few years uh, later he drafted uh, Chad Hennings, and that wound up paying dividends for the next regime. And because of the success they had with Staubach, Schramm was completely unafraid to take a risk, uh, realize the upside. If the USFL somehow pulled itself out of the doldrums, there wasn't any downside. They gave a, you know, a low-round draft choice, but if they wound up getting him, then they had an exceptional player. And the real... So, and because of the Staubach history, and there had been others. Schramm also at one point drafted Carl Lewis in the 12th round. That was a disaster, mm-hmm. but it was a 12th round pick, so who cared? And so the actual drafting of Walker didn't create that much of a fuss. But when in the summer of 86, the USFL folded in a hurry, that created a big stir because the Cowboys were already in training camp, and as it developed... Walker's agents came to Schramm, who was a notoriously difficult negotiator from the player's perspective, and they basically said, you have a 24-hour window to sign him. And after that, you don't have him anymore. You're not going to have his rights, and we're going to take it to court. So Schramm had 24 hours to get something done. And the irony of it was that Following that 85 season that you mentioned, with the difficult way it ended, Schramm became convinced that they needed a new approach offensively. And Tom Landry had told him that at some point here in the next couple of years, I'm probably going to retire. Tom later changed his mind. But Tex was told by Landry, I'm probably going to retire and uh, you, you, you need to start thinking down the road. So in February of 86, as a matter of fact, on the same day that the NBA held its all-star game in Dallas, Schramm announced the hiring of Paul Hackett, who was the uh, quarterback's coach for the 49ers, and at that time he was one of the hot young assistants in the NFL. And Hackett dis- dis- spent the entire offseason devising an offense that included Staubach and Dorsett and the pieces that they had in place. And one day in the middle of training camp, he literally had Herschel Walker handed to him and said, oh, by the way, incorporate him into your new offense, too. And that was, uh, that, that was really a tricky thing. And, uh, and they did it for uh, half a season until uh, Danny, well, I said Staubach, but it was Danny White. Right, right. Uh, Staubach had retired. And, and Danny White... Uh, was was at the top of his game, and they were really cooking on offense until White got injured uh, that year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and still, Walker had a remarkable year. They were able to move him around and put him in the slot and flank him out wide. Yeah, he had over running back 1,500 and, yards rushing and receiving. I remember the Cowboys were 6-2. and two, year, yeah. and nobody, you know, Herschel was happy to be in the NFL. Uh, they, they, they made him a receiver enough to keep Dorsett as the primary runner, and uh, in, in the early going, 
there wasn't enough time for everybody to think about it and jealousies to arise because they were already in training camp when they got Herschel. They also, by the way, got Nate Newton in that same That's right. little bonanza, mm-hmm. and that turned out to be a key part of later Super Bowls. But in Herschel's case, uh, the, the drafting of him was much less uh, impactful than the day in, in training camp in 86 when he arrived. And I, I always thought that the fact that, that Paul Hackett primarily found ways to use him uh, and convince Landry that this would work was uh, one of the more remarkable coaching accomplishments in the history of this franchise. And talk about the, the relationship that Dorsett had with Walker, because uh, Dorsett obviously was a little upset initially, but he didn't want Walker to take it personally. I guess he felt like at the time that the Cowboys were just ready to, to send him out the door with uh, Herschel's arrival. And the Cowboys had that reputation of of uh, bringing the next guy in and uh, being somewhat dispassionate about um, cutting loose a guy, uh, trying to do it a year too soon instead of a year too late. And, uh, you know, as I said, for a while, Walker was getting a lot of his touches split out wide, and Dorsett did not want to cause a problem, but, yeah, he didn't want to uh, have his role on the team diminished by the arrival of the younger Walker, and, in fact, it did cause a problem ultimately. And Herschel was one who who said things... Uh, in the next year or so, when they were not a very good team, uh, things like, uh, well, you know, uh, Herschel Herschel could go uh, be in the FBI. You know, Herschel (laughs) doesn't have to play football. And so here you had a younger guy making a lot less money at the time Mm -hmm. with an obvious amount of physical talent. It was really, from a business standpoint, uh, a no-brainer decision, and it did put Dorsett in a very difficult situation position and he wound up actually uh, he hurt his hurt his knee and he wound up going to Denver for one year to finish his career. Uh, talk about how the teammates embraced Walker. Uh, we know the story obviously with with Doug Flutie in 86 how he came in mid-season and the Bears were kind of uh, they, they were loyal to their man Jim McMahon. How did how did the Cowboys and how do you remember the Cowboys embracing Herschel Walker at the time? Um, you know uh, he, he was a, Herschel was a little different, and uh, you know he did things like uh, you know talk about himself in the third person a little bit, and uh, <laughs> and he he uh, would go uh, he'd talk about the FBI stuff, and he uh, would um, go dance with the uh, symphony, doing some ballet stuff, and uh, he he wasn't. He was. It wasn't like a Ricky Williams situation of a year ago, but he didn't have the uh, passion though of a football player. No, no. And and the thing about Herschel, and and I always liked Herschel and and got along with him very well. But Herschel, I think, was a much better athlete than he was a football player. Mm-hmm. Herschel was a real, uh, real good college runner, a great college runner in an I formation. Uh, where he could see certain things, and he had a fullback blocking for him. But when he got into the pros, and sometimes uh, they used a split backfield, there weren't too many one-back sets in Dallas back then, but they, they'd split them sometimes, and and there were some things. And Herschel, Herschel had a little trouble avoiding contact. He, he didn't ever seem that he wanted to avoid contact. He, he liked running people over. Bill Bates, who had a tremendous career, 
for the Cowboys as a as a safety. Sure. Uh, what played at Tennessee when Herschel was at Georgia, and uh, for many years when Herschel was here, Bill got kidded about a, a very famous Georgia Tennessee game where Herschel just ran him over, and Bates was one of the best players in the SEC at the time, and Herschel just ran him over in the open field. Uh, but but if you put Herschel in the open field one on one with a safety, Herschel would find him and try to run him over, and and he just didn't seem to have the instinct for making someone miss uh, like he might uh, uh, instead of of trying to make contact and and overpower the guy. And I remember you talk about Herschel running over people. I remember distinctly because I remember the New York papers when the Cowboys got Herschel Walker and uh, the back page, I don't know if it was a post of the Daily News, read Double Trouble and had a picture of Herschel and, and Tony Dorsett in that Monday night game against the Giants. Dorsett started the game. Dorsett get hurts, ironically. Herschel finishes the game. Ten rushes, 64 yards. And as I recall, he had uh, the, the big touchdown in that game. So, yeah, I mean, and, and, you I, know, they, and he ran over Harry Carson was a point I'm getting to. And nobody ran over Harry Carson in those well, days. Well, exactly. And, and I mean, he, and he, was a, he was a superlative athlete. He was one of the greatest athletes probably that ever played in the league. But that doesn't make you a great instinctive football player. And he was a good football player, but I don't think he, he was a football player on the level of, of the athlete that he was. And, yeah, he had moments like that when he'd run over Harry Carson, and if you do that on Monday night in New York, then you get uh, anointed to a certain degree, and really it was just one game. And it was hard for the two, you know, for, for the two of them to be in the backfield together, especially the way offenses were back then. You know, one of them's got to be a fullback. So we, we, we moved to 1988, and you know the Cowboys dropped to 3-13. and 13. Herschel has a good year. Take me to the process, the transition between 88-89 when Jerry Jones buys the team and the whole thought of trading Herschel Walker uh, in, in 1989 on that fateful well, yeah, October day. Well, yeah, I think day. that that kind of developed, I, 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 as, as the story goes, I, I think it was a case of uh, Jimmy Johnson and Dave Wanstead and Tony Wise uh, – members of the coaching staff who jogged together every day, uh, being out running, and uh, they, they realized pretty fast what they had, or, or maybe more to the point, what they didn't have. And uh, there was interest in Herschel, and it turned out there was interest uh, in terms of a great deal of uh, draft choices, and they, you know, they, they knew what they had. They knew what their upside was with Herschel, and they knew what they needed, and they could just get way more football players than uh, than Herschel could do that team any. I mean, it was a terrible team. '88. Mm-hmm. It was really the three and thirteen team in '88 may have been worse than the one and fifteen team in '89 <laughs> because it was old and getting older. And, and it and, was strange to see a Cowboys team because in my lifetime, I never knew a Cowboys team that lost and, and that seemed almost feeble on the field. So it was a strange new situation with the Cowboys. Right, and and uh, it was part of that whole uh, deal. Shram was really very frustrated with Landry and would never say it publicly because Tom had uh, told him to get ready for the next era and then uh, and then reversed field on him and announced at a press conference that he intended to coach into the 90s and I always thought he meant his 90s and uh, and he didn't tell Tex that beforehand mm-hmm. and Tom uh, had a little problem uh, kind of letting go of some of his older guys at the end which was really ironic because it was something he never had a problem with uh, throughout most of his career, and and really it wasn't so much Tom, but the the scouting uh, had uh, had kind of gotten antiquated. They they for many years they had twenty consecutive winning seasons. I mean mm-hmm. that was unheard of, 
and uh, they were in the playoffs every year but one for most of for, for a stretch in there and uh, they were light years ahead of the league in scouting methodology right but the league caught up to them and they started making some bad draft choices and they suddenly didn't have the talent pool and they got older and they got divided as a team the strikes hurt them particularly the last one because uh, Dorsett crossed in 87 as I recall Dorsett right and Randy White that's right and uh, Ed Jones and there were a few others who uh, uh, Shram frankly uh, uh, played real serious hardball with those guys had long-term annuities that were going to take care of them into their old age mm-hmm. and he informed them that uh, you know if they stayed out those annuities were gone and contractually, Shram was in the right, so they had to cross, and that really tore up the team. Mm-hmm. And Danny White kind of uh, was seen at one point as trying to make a separate deal with Shram, whether he really was or not, it was perceived that way. So they became a very divided team and an old team, and the, the it, it might have been easier to see coming had it not been for the strike in 87 and all the replacement games. Because in 84, they had missed the playoffs for the first time in, uh, in a very long time, over a decade. Mm-hmm. In 85, they won the division despite having a couple of games where they got blown out. But they were, Landry was brilliant in 85, kept them competitive. They won their division. Uh, 86 is when they had the whole turmoil with Herschel arriving and White getting hurt. And so the injuries masked. Uh, what was really happening, and then in 87 you had the strike, and so there was no continuity, and there was no way to really uh, kind of define what kind of team they were, but 88 defined it. It caught up to them in 88, Mm -hmm. and um, that season made Bum Bright ready to sell the team. He sold it to Jerry Jones. Uh, Jimmy came in with him in 89, and they knew exactly what their talent problems were, and so they had Walker, for whom uh, Mike Lynn and the Vikings were willing to pay literally a king's ransom. And they, the, the way their talent pool was at the time, they couldn't say no to that deal. And it looked idiotic, because they only had one decent player that anyone wanted to see, and they traded him. Mm-hmm. And of course it turned out to be the foundation that gave them enough draft choices you know, ironically, they thought of as having been great players, and they did draft some great players, but they had so many picks over uh, the next few years, they really didn't hit it more than about a 50% rate, but the volume of players they got was more than most teams because they had that many more choices. Uh, you, and those guys, turned into, those guys turned into Aikman and Johnston and Stepnoski and uh, Tony Tolbert, and then they got Jay Novacek in Plan B, and they already had Michael Irvin, who Landry had drafted in '88, and mm-hmm. and uh, then in uh, was it Emmett Smith part of it too as well? Emmett Smith yeah. was uh, Emmett Smith. They drafted yeah. and and uh, and then in '92 they added Charles Haley and Charles so Haley. Put, Jeez, I forgot They put about those it. pieces together. They had all these draft choices to do it with, mm-hmm. and and they they did a great job, and obviously. Being willing to trade Herschel, it was very daring, 
and it was uh, the best thing they did in those early years of, of uh, Jones' tenure here. Do you remember if it was Jones's idea or Johnson's from talking to his coaching staff, like you said? that's where uh, it I, I think that it probably originated with Jimmy and the coaches and people that, that they were talking to around the league, but, but uh, those things were all made, uh, those decisions were all made together, and Jerry was, was with them real quick. Obviously, the Vikings at the time had a talented wide receiver in the name of Anthony Carter, a hell of a defense led by Keith Millard, Joey Browner, and such. And, and they were really on the cusp of, of making a run, they thought. Were you surprised at, at Lynn's over-exuberance to offer so much for a running back? Didn't seem to be at that very moment, um, for especially from the outside, it didn't seem to be... Um, a disaster. It seemed to be a calculated risk that might pay off because of all those other pieces they had that you mentioned. Now, you had to have been around Herschel and watched him to realize that maybe he was a better athlete than a football player and that he might have a problem realizing the success in Minnesota that they expected. But um, considering how great an athlete he was and how great a player he had been at Georgia and in the USFL, um, and considering how close the Vikings thought they were in 1989, I, I don't. I think it's a little unfair to them to look at it through the eyes of at the time. You can look back and say, "Gee whiz, what a what a knucklehead move that was." But um, you know, had the Cowboys not put the pieces together that they did, if the Cowboys had floundered along and and uh, you know been the Cincinnati Bengals for the next uh, ten years, then it, I don't think the Vikings would have been pilloried so much for it. You know, your funny thing, you talk about the Cincinnati Bengals. I pulled some quotes from 20 years ago, and Mike Brown said, eh, you know, with the USFL, maybe they'll be like a 44th, 45th player. I don't expect much of the players. But certain general managers that looked at the league and, and coaches like Jim Moore that came over, uh, you know, Marv Levy's and such, they invested in USFL players. And, and the teams that seem to invest in the USFL players – uh, it seemed to pay dividends from the from the mid to late 80s to, to really the early 90s. Do you agree with that assessment? Uh, yeah, I do. I, but I think something else you said there is really equally important, and that is the coaching pool was uh, was probably uh, uh, undervalued within the NFL. Look, the NFL uh, has for a long time had a well-earned arrogance about it, and they had it at the time of the merger with the AFL, and they, uh, and they had it uh, toward the USFL, and uh, they, they didn't like to think or admit that there was anybody else who could do anything in the game. Only the NFL had any ability. And the fact is there were some good players, as we found out, uh, who, who with uh, you know, a little better coaching and a little better competition became better players. And certainly there were coaches who could make a big impact on the NFL. I think that, that might even be a greater legacy of the USFL uh, when you look back at the whole thing, than some of those players. And, and going to the coaching staff, uh, the general manager staff, Marv Levy, his year with the Chicago Blitz, he hired a guy by the name of Bill Polian from the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, and they hired a scout by the name of John Butler. So those three guys really built the foundation of what became the Buffalo Bills in the late 80s to early 90s. The Jim Kelly, USFL, Kent Hull, Scott right. Norwood, Ray Bentley. So they Steve Young. Steve, that's right, two, uh, um, Doug Williams came back from the USFL after that's not playing right. for a couple of years. You know, the irony is the Cowboys had kind of been through this with the old World Football League in the 70s. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the Cowboys had a bunch of guys 
Uh, and it may be one reason that Schramm was uh, was willing to bring on some of these guys. I mean, he had players cross over Calvin Hill and, and a number of his other high-profile players uh, who crossed over to the World Football League. So they'd fought this fight, and they fought it with the AFL uh, when the AFL was, was uh, starting. And so I think that they're... There were a few people, uh, and, and I think some of the ones in Dallas were among them, who recognized, although they would never admit it, that the NFL didn't have a total corner on the, on the talent market in, in players and coaching. But I think that, that some of those guys kind of snuck up on uh, the NFL. Sure. Now you look at the Sam Mills who got a second chance, of course. And then I was, exactly. ta- I was talking to Bart Oates, and he was saying he came out of a, a school where they passed all the time. And when he went to the USFL, he learned how to run block uh, under Coach Moore. So it really helped him his three years when he went right to the Giants and was a starting center for the New York Giants in, right. in, in 1985. And, and now, you know, they don't have any problems about taking a guy who's been in the Canadian League or mm-hmm. uh, who, who played in the XFL or who uh, played in the Arena League. And, you know, they... they they're smarter now about it, and I think that, that the USFL experience helped uh, change the way the NFL looked at football players. And one final thing on uh, on Herschel Walker. Towards after the 89 season, and I believe by 91, Herschel was really being benched by Jerry Burns. Do you remember thinking anything at the time, like, you know, you know what the hell is going on with this guy? With Herschel? Yeah, at the time. Because obviously things had soured because they, they had losing seasons in 1990, 91. And yeah, no, I, I, I think that probably most of us here didn't think what's going on with this guy because we, we knew Herschel was a little different. Okay. Um, one of the things that you need to succeed in professional football, whether it's as a player or a coach, is a burning desire to do it. And if you only uh, do it because you can, you won't do it very well, and you won't do it very long. It's just too difficult, and it's too demanding, and it's too brutal. Mm-hmm. And so those of us who saw Herschel knew he was a rare talent. Uh, he was someone that people were going to remember forever and ever, but he, he just was a little different. His priorities seemed to be a little different, and I don't know that anyone uh, here was totally shocked at the fact that it didn't pan out for him uh, in in Minnesota, maybe a little surprised, but not totally shocked. 